Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Mark and Patricia McCloskey first met one another while they were law students at Southern Methodist University in Texas. Since then, they have rocketed into the national media spotlight after controversial images and videos of the couple waving their guns at a procession of protesters marching through their street in St. Louis, Missouri on June 28th of 2020. On this episode of the Carlos Watson Show podcast, Mark and Patricia McCloskey describe what they recalled from the dramatic summer evening when their house was swarmed with protesters and the aftermath of the event. Mark, Patricia? Hi, how are you doing? Good, how you doing? Happy Friday to you. Oh, happy Friday to you. And uh, they used to say yabba dabba do in my part of town, but uh, yeah. uh, I'm not sure people even remember what yabba dabba do means anymore. You're not Absolutely. that old. Yeah, yeah. You can't know that. Are you guys in St. Louis or where are you guys today? We're, we're in St. Louis. We're at the scene of the crime. Okay, okay. And have you guys moved at all during COVID or have you have you literally been at home kind of march all the way through now? We've, we've been home the whole time. I mean, we uh, and our office is very small. It's just two of us and... and one staff member typically, and so we've, uh, being essential workers and all, I mean, the uh, truth and justice never sleeps, as they say. So we go to the office every day. So. Oh, you literally go to your office? Oh, yeah. It's a mile away. No, it's a half a mile away. Oh, very nice. Now, are you guys walkers, or are you guys, uh, you know, they have that funny scene, that movie with um, uh, Steve Martin back in the day where he lives in L.A., and he drives down the block one block. So do you guys... Do you guys walk? Do you guys? It, it's three blocks away where we drive. <laughs> okay. Okay. I love that. So you have a little Steve Martin in you. That's not bad. That's yeah. good. That's good. Yeah. Now, how did you How did you guys meet? I always like the Harry Met Sally stories. How did you guys uh, meet? Well, you know, she was working her way through uh, law school as a cocktail waitress, and I was a class ahead of her in law school. I was out on a date with a, with a pretty girl, and we went to the wrong bar. I was trying to hit another bar and ended up at the bar she was working at. I said to the girl I was with, yeah, I said, I'd like to meet her. She's the prettiest girl in law school. And so uh, she was impressed with the appearance of the girl I was with and said, yeah, if he's good enough for her, maybe he's good enough for me. The rest was history. Now, now Patricia, I have to ask you, because I always have to get the other side of the story. 
Is that the way you tell the story, or how did you guys meet? It's actually true. Absolutely <laughs> true. Yeah, and I think he probably proposed on our second day, but I gave it like a month. Oh yeah, you know what? That's not bad. You had, you had, you had <laughs> just to decide if you wanted a return policy or not. So I love that you uh, you took you took a little bit of time with it. Is not bad. Now, were you guys in Missouri at the time, or where were you guys? At SMU in Dallas. Oh, my goodness. Uh, SMU used to have some beautiful football teams back in the day. I don't know if you guys were fans, but I remember uh, Craig James and uh, Eric Dickerson, and they had some good squads uh, way back when. Yeah, Craig James, Eric Dickerson, Michael Carter, all those guys were in my freshman class. Is that, oh, you went there undergrad as well? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I went both undergrad and law school. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Well, I um, I was an Ohio State fan, so I can't say I was an SMU fan, but I admired uh, I, I admired what you guys did back in the day. I know. I was a Penn State undergraduate, so you guys were definitely bad news to us. <laughs> Although, you know, you, you guys had some good teams, Patricia. I used to know a guy named John Schaefer, who was a quarterback on your national championship team in the mid to late 80s. And uh he would tell me uh, great stories about State College. I never got to visit, but he would tell me great stories about coming into the stadium. I think so, yeah. It was a pretty great. The only thing I know about football in the stadium was that I was I had to put myself through school, undergraduate, which I did in three years. But the only time I went to the stadium was when I was selling hot dogs. So I didn't have time to look <laughs> to see what was going on. I was selling hot dogs. So. I, you know, <laughs> I, I, I love someone who's, who's working their way through school. I did the same thing, so I appreciate uh I appreciate being on the move and and, uh, and and being focused. So how did you guys end up in St. Louis? Because it sounds like you guys may both be kind of Texas, Pennsylvania, other places. How did you guys end up in St. Louis? Um, I was born and raised here, and, and uh, we decided to you know come back here. And it was a good place to do what we did for a living in those days. Not so much so now. Um, but it, uh, St. Louis, compared to Dallas, was uh, very inexpensive. Dallas was very expensive in those days. Uh, and uh, housing prices were ridiculous. Uh, in St. Louis, you could buy the same quality house for ten cents of the dollar. So it was uh, it seemed like a logical move at the time, and and it worked out. And you guys have been there ever since. You guys have done the distance in uh, in St. Louis. Yeah, we have been. We've owned this house for well thirty three years. Next month. Wow. And how did you find that house? Was that was that a neighborhood you grew up in, Mark, or or was this one of these dream houses that you drove by twelve times? The, the answer to the question is both. A lot of my friends lived in this neighborhood. This is where some of the, the old uh, families in St. Louis lived. But there used to be a Rolls-Royce and Jaguar dealer one block over, and I've always been a car guy. When I was in high school, I worked on cars. I was an auto mechanic. And I used to hang out at it was called Gruitt Motor Car Company, and it's right across the street from where we are right now. And I and so both some of my childhood friends lived here on Portland and Westmoreland, but I also was working right across the street. So it, it kind of grew on me. And then Patty saw a picture of this house in my high school yearbook and said, that's not a house, that's a bank, you know, or post office. And uh, <laughs> who would want to live there? I you know, it's so funny. I looked at it the first time I saw it. I thought the same thing. It's funny that you say that out loud, Mark. I thought that's not a house there in front of. It looked kind of like a, uh, as you said, a post office or a bank or something. Yeah. Yeah. So, Anyway, home sweet home. I uh, I, I love that. That's uh, it, it's good to have a spot. Well, I I know you guys have had so many different conversations over the last what is it now? Probably seven or eight months uh, 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 since that evening. 
How do you guys think back upon it now? Because, you know, sometimes in the moment you think about something one way, and sometimes three months, six months later, for any of a number of reasons, you start to think about it differently. How do you guys think back about that night uh, as you stand here today in January? You know, the, the, the interesting thing to us is that only that first night, only uh, June the 28th, ever gets reported by the media. And that was the easier of the two events. The, uh, the, the mob came back on July the 3rd with the express intent of killing us and burning down the house. And now this mob was estimated at between 500 and 1,000. And that was, that was the, uh, the hairy night. That was the time when we really thought the end had come. And uh, we, we had a long time trying to get some security. And the people we normally hire you know, in our business from time to time, we hire secondary employment cops. Nobody wanted to get involved because of the bad press. We, uh, tried, we were referred to a uh, kind of a high-end global security firm that's based about 50 miles from here. They'd gotten bad press over the Ferguson incident, and they didn't want to get involved. The uh, guy finally tells me, uh, you know, what I do is just take whatever you can't live without, put it in your cars, drive away, and just abandon your house. And I said, well, no way in heck I'm going to do that. You know, we're going to go down to the ship if we have to. Um, I'd gotten a call from uh, the White House earlier in the week, and uh, one of the guys at the White House said the president wanted to express his support. And if there's ever anything we can do for you, uh, give us a call, let us know. So now it's Thursday night before that Friday, July the 3rd. We had every belief that we were going to die. And our daughter, who was staying with us, came and gave us a hug and a kiss and took her favorite stuffed animal from when she was three years old and left, um, thinking she'd never see us again. Um, and I, uh, I got that guy from the White House on the phone, and I said, well, he said, if there's ever anything you can do, give us a call. It's a, a heck of a good time, okay? And so he gave me Mark Meadows' cell phone number. And I called up Mark Meadows and told him the story. And uh, then the next call I made was to Tucker Carlson. And I was sitting on the bench in the, in the uh, kitchen, Patty sitting beside me, sobbing because we thought we were going to die. Uh, we had not been to sleep since that previous Sunday night. We'd spent the whole week hiding valuables and stuffing things in walls and under beds and stuff. And, uh, you know, Tucker put us on the air and said, I'm talking to Mark Leposky. I could hear Patty sobbing in the background and told the story. And uh, but still, when that, that Friday came, we were pretty certain we were going to die. Uh, but it, it all came together. We had tremendous support at the end. We had um, uh, some SEALs came up from Texas and from one guy, fourth generation cattle farmer, Navy SEAL, drove in from Kansas, just put his gear in his truck and drove here. We had support from the, from the government. We had, uh, in, as a result of Tucker Carlson's call, maybe 10 or so secondary employment cops from rural jurisdictions that weren't afraid to, to have their name in the press if they had to. And then, despite the fact that the St. Louis Police Department had been told to stand down, Chief John Hayden himself, great guy, he came out, stood, came out in front of the house, met with our private security forces, organized a, a plan, and he stayed there virtually all night. I mean, the crowd hit the gate at about 7 o'clock at night, and the chief himself stood out front until maybe 3.30 in the morning making sure we were okay. And, and they were not sure that it was going to, that a gate was going to hold. They had built a brand new gate and they weren't sure that the St. Louis city police wanted to bring in what they called an extraction vehicle. And that would, I think they said hold 24. Who knew that there was such a thing as an extraction vehicle in the city where they could come in here as the place was burning and get us out and put us in this van, the bomb proof van to get us out of the way of this 500 to 1,000 person mob that did come back. So, and threaten. Yeah, and so you know, chance. there, 
It was an unbelievable. It was an unbelievable sight. Tell me a little bit more about that. I don't know that I've ever been in that same situation. Uh, were you quiet? Were you loud? Were you were you leaving the house? Were you staying in? Talk to me a little bit about that time period. That day, um, the first day, with the night when it happened, um, Mark arranged. They stood there and told us that they knew where our office was and they were going over to burn it down. So Mark got people um, immediately to go over to the office and board it up. And he was there until two o'clock in the morning with them boarding up that house. Then they went over to the, they left here. They had to get let out of our community because it, once they broke in the gate that they had to were broken out to get out. So our security guard let them out. They went over and they created havoc and spray painted and tried to set fire to, tried to, set fire to the mayor's house and smashed the front door and, and lots of other things. And uh, they chased off uh, the. Yeah, there's a there's a, a NBC affiliate uh, female reporter that was in front of the mayor's house trying to do some live interviews. One of the uh, peaceful protesters that was in front of our house uh, produced an AK-47. The NBC affiliate uh, reporter had an armed guard with her who uh, was about to pull his pistol. There's going to be a firefight in front of the mayor's house. And the NBC affiliate decided to hightail it out of there. And what they did, and yet that man with the AK-47 followed them to their, their van, and they drove as fast as they could to get away. And she says all this on, on air. So she will, I mean, you can see it on the, on the report. They don't play it very often, but it's out there. So, um, so that was, that was night stayed, number one. We, we, did we stay and we had everything boarded up. This house was boarded up. The office was boarded up. Our staff quit, would never come back. We had to hire new staff. No. Nobody will come back. Um, did we stay in? I don't. We got a lot. We are. We had to take our website down naturally. Um, we got lots of death threats, lots of um, uh, many, 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 many thousands of calls at the house, on ourselves, at the office. Um, but uh, after we we then secured things of value, I guess. Maybe people broken wouldn't have found them of value, but we did. You know. Yeah, if the house burns, it's all gone anyway. They were they were uh, chanting as you're coming up Kings Highway in the second event. You know, burn the down. And our our new congresswoman, the lady that represents us in the House of Representatives now, was standing outside the fence with a megaphone, uh, chanting, "You can't stop the revolution." Well. The, uh, the Navy SEAL, who is my personal protection, standing behind me, leaning on his M16, said, oh, yes, I can. So it was a harrowing night. This was our our new representative, Cori Bush. She was at the front of the pack. Patty, when you, when you think back about that, and again, I've never been in that situation, so I ask all of this humbly because I've never been in your shoes, and I respect the fact that um, with so many things, unless you're actually there and you actually live it, you can... You can think about it as best you can, but you know you haven't you haven't actually been in it. If you had to do all of this over again, would you have done anything differently? And I'm not asking that critically, but I'm I'm asking, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, and as I hear you guys think about this and wrestle with this, would you have done anything differently? Would you have? I'll I'll just start there. Would you have done anything differently that first night? Do you think? No. I wish, I wish, I because I beat myself up. I think, I think, what could I have done? Nothing. I could have done nothing. We would not be here alive. Our house would not be here. I mean, these folks, these you folks. You don't understand mean, the things that they were yelling. I mean, these people, 
were, and you don't play it, and they don't show it, and you don't see the number of people, three to 500 people in front of you over a course of a 200, uh, width of our house is 200 feet. They were deep, they were yelling, they were weaponized. They had the, um, they- Body armor. Body armor, they had the headgear, they had the, the, the face masks. And weapons. They, they had backpacks. What is gonna happen here? They just smashed the thing down. They're screaming, they're coming in, they're as far as the eye can see, and it's you, which, and Mark was on the side porch. I realized after I called 911, came, ran, I saw, Mark said, private property. As soon as he said private property, that upset them. I mean, that, that upset them. And it is private property. And they seem to be coming toward the house, or the group seemed to be moving closer to us. And that wasn't going to be pretty. And I went in, called 911. Then when I was coming back by the front door, I realized that they're all, they looked like they were coming up the front stairs. And Mark, where he was standing, could not see what was happening and they couldn't see him on the side porch. So I thought I'd better go out and stop it because they're coming in here. My daughter fell on the floor. She's 31. She fell on the floor. Her legs just buckled under her and said, my parents are going to be dead right now. They're dying right now. Now, is she talking to Jesus? Uh, she's a good Catholic girl. I don't know why she said that out loud. And then um, she ran up and hid behind a sofa in the house because she was sure they were coming in. And, and then I went, I, we had been told that this group was coming two days before. We had no idea like they would come into the house. We thought maybe it would be a Molotov cocktail or something. We had already had fire extinguishers around the house because we had been warned by the security on our street. We had been warned by looking around our neighborhood. Our neighborhood was burned down. It was smashed in. Our uh, they drove through the front of the of the office depot and just tore everything out. They went into our this little tiny um, uh, pharmacy around the corner from us, um, smashed down the front door, pulled up somehow, cranked up one of those you know those things you figure that, that are going to keep you you know roll up doors, cranked that down. Nine one one is called immediately, um, automatically. How many hours did it take for the cops? Yeah, the uh, the owner of the pharmacy said that the uh, the uh, took the, the guys are inside the pharmacy looting and stealing for six hours. It took the police ten hours to get there, and uh, you know that's we the uh, this organization quits uh, out flyers. They say when and where they're going to have a mob action, and they had published a, a flyer saying they're going to go to the uh, mayor's house um, on June the twenty eighth, and then it said and something extra. Well, the something extra was us. Um, we, there is a videotape you can see where you can hear the uh, people on the street coming up Kings Highway saying that we all know we were, you know, where we're headed. And a lot of us know where we're really headed. Yeah, which was not the mayor. By the way, despite what it says in the press, uh, Mayor Cruson doesn't live on our street. Uh, we've got a, a private street that's gated on, on all sides. She lives two blocks north and a half a mile west of us. And you cannot get to her house from here without, without uh, crashing the gates. 
And so that, that part of what's been widely reported is completely false. That, and to this day, that's why I sent you guys the pictures yesterday. To this day, the media always reports that the gate was open and the gate wasn't torn down. Try to imply that sometime after the mob came in, I tore down my own gate. But anyway, I, I sent you the, the photographs. I'd gone out because our daughter was going to stop at the grocery store across the street, get some supplies for a barbecue, then meet us here. And I heard the, the, the mobs forming, and I walked out the gate talking to her on my cell phone to see if she got caught where she'd already gotten out of the grocery store and away before the mob formed. And she had, but I took a picture and I sent it to you of the, of the uh, crowd down the street, took a picture of the uh, a gate uh, immediately afterwards. I think the one picture is 649. The other picture is 749. And I took a picture or you've got a picture that was taken by one of the news reporters of Black Lives Matter protesters, if you want to call them that passing through the crushed down gate. And yet to this day, despite the fact all of those pictures have been out there in the media for six and a half months now, almost seven months, no one reports that. And as recently as yesterday, I still have media outlets talking about how the protesters peacefully entered through an open gate. Uninformed people, uh, I see it in the paper, I've seen it in a lot of things, saying that this street was chosen because it's a bastion of white supremacy or white, uh, imperialism or something and they don't know the neighbor right across the street from me is black and he's his father was black they've been living there since 1972 next door to me a mixed couple black and white with mixed children i have gay guys, gay across guys the street next door. chinese people i mean uh, every everybody there, I mean, there are 42 houses in this street as of right now i think that there are probably what five that are that are african-american um Mostly, uh, uh, they're, they're uh, mostly, well, not mostly, I, I hate to characterize, lots of uh, mixed couples, gay couples, um, both, uh, 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 you know, uh, and it's been that way for the whole 33 years. This has never been a, uh, this has always been about as diverse a neighborhood as you're going to find in St. Louis. And liberal. And liberal. And St. Louis, as you may know, is one of the most racially divided cities in the country. I mean, uh, South St. Louis is almost all white. North St. Louis is almost all black, and there's very little interchange between the, the races here, with the exception of this specific neighborhood, where it's always been a, a mixed neighborhood, and, and no one's ever had any problem with it. But I see newspaper articles written saying no black person would ever be allowed to live there. In fact, they weren't allowed to live there, they say, under the, the restrictions. That was never under our restrictions. That never happened. There have been people here, and and happily, we're, we're all happy. We, we you know, it, it's kind of shocking that they can say these things. And I think that the people that maybe that decided, hey, let's stop in on this particular street because they are all those things you might have heard about in the paper. They're just uninformed. And the paper's at fault for that. Fan in the flames. Fan in the flames. Yeah. Patty and Mark, uh, um, you mind if I ask you guys a few questions about that? This is, this is helpful to, to hear this. Um, you mind if I ask you guys a few questions about some of this? No, go ahead. Go ahead. So, so, so. Are you saying that you think they were coming originally, the protesters were coming towards your house, or they were coming towards the neighborhood? They were, I think, I don't know if it was specifically us or the neighborhood. Um, we have, um, in, we live in a very liberal uh, neighborhood, as, as Patty mentioned. We are um, overtly conservative Republicans and very, very rare in this neighborhood. And so um, the fact that, that they came in 
the gate on our side instead of the gate on the other side, the fact that they came in um, and that they had posted, you know, something extra or something special. I can't remember exactly the phraseology, um, but it, it, it's unknowable. You know, no one stole us one way or the other. We'll get back to our interview in a minute, but first I'd like to share a really insightful discussion that I recently had with former NBA player Jalen Rose. Now, this year we've seen some of the largest ever protests of racism in America. In fact, more people are realizing just how deep this problem runs, even though we've still got a ways to go. Jalen told me about what it's like to witness police violence and how harmful it is when white folks don't speak up against injustice. When I was watching TV and an an elderly gentleman in Buffalo got pushed down by the police, I felt the same way about him that I would feel about a black person. But I noticed when it happened to George Floyd and he was handcuffed, there were people still trying to justify why it took place. Oh, he had some things in his past. He made some bad decisions. He should have did this. He should have did that. Our conversation was part of a panel on race, politics, and the American dream brought to you in partnership with Chevrolet. You can hear the full discussion on ozzy.com slash real talk or on our Ozzy YouTube channel. Everyone in our country has a voice. It's something that says not just where you come from, but who you are. Welcome to NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of podcasts and a celebration of the hosts in journalism who've always spoken truth to power. Our voices are as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, and stories should never be about us without us. Find NPR Black Stories, Black Truths on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes... I guess identify the life that I want and and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics, in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. right. 
Mark and Patty, if, do you think, and again, I realize I'm asking all this humbly because uh, I wasn't there. You know, uh, they often talk about de-escalating situations and situations that get tense, they get difficult. I had a really interesting conversation with a woman in Northern Ireland, Maureen Harrington. We talked about the years after the peace accord, some of the things that she taught people and learned about how to de-escalate really difficult situations. Mark, do you think if you would come out uh, without weapons and if instead of saying private property, you had engaged um, uh, the protesters differently do you think there would have been a different outcome? And again, I'm not asking this critically, but I'm just taking a step back with the benefit of hindsight. You know, do you think you think things would have worked out differently? I'll give you the frame of reference that, that I was coming from at the time. On the night of June the 1st and June the 2nd of this year, downtown St. Louis was burned. The same, the same mob attacked in downtown St. Louis, burned buildings, shot four police officers, murdered on live stream. Retired police captain David Dorn, who is one of the best loved people in town. Who is black? Who's black? Um, and and mixed race couple. Ann Dorn's a, a Caucasian woman. Um, and we watched on television that night the 7-Eleven in downtown St. Louis, two blocks from the police station. From the time the first brick went through a window, when the fire was set, fire spreads through the building, people looting it, roof comes down. 30, 40 minutes we watched. This from the time the first rock goes through the window and fell, it's looted, empty, and burned to the ground. No police show up. No fire department shows up. And Patty and I look at each other and say, you know, holy, you know what? When the pit hits the shan, you're out there all in your wild lonesome, and you got you to be able to take care of yourself. When that group came through the fence, when they crashed down the gate, okay, they are 60 feet from the house. They can hit the house in a second. All right. Am I supposed to sit there and judge? Are you the good protester or are you the people that are going to burn my house and murder me like you did on June the 1st and June the 2nd downtown? An instantaneous response was necessary. I would have done it exactly the same today. And yet, if there's, if there, we have gotten lots of uh, emails and Facebook posts saying that if we had put off a shot, even accidentally, they'd have taken us down like dogs. They were armed. They're ready for a battle. Um, so would I make a different decision? Would it de-escalate? I don't know. But I think it's just as likely that I would not be here today and this house would it'd still be a smoldering ruin if we hadn't taken the action we had. And how do you de-escalate among 250, who may not have heard this, 300 screaming? Irate. Irate people. It's just more noise, more calamity that you could ever embrace. And it's going on all around you. The day before, um, well, tell them what happened at the Art Hill. That you know that famous yeah, statue yeah. of on, on the highest on the highest uh, point in St. Louis during the 1904 World Fair. They built the Palace of Fine Arts, which is now our art museum. Standing in front of that is a larger than life statue of uh, Louis the Ninth, St. Louis, uh, on horseback with his hand raised with a sword held by the by the blade, you know, sign of, of peace. Um, Catholics go there every Saturday evening to uh, uh, to pray uh, for St. Louis. It's a, it's a patron saint. Um, and a group of fellows the night before um, came out there to have a conflict with the Catholics, beat them, uh, beat them with sticks and baseball bats. The uh, leader of that organization that was there doing the beating went on television, based right on TV like yours and mine right now, saying, yes, I did it. We did it because we're white and we do it again. 
Did that guy get arrested? No. Um, and so that's the context in which we're watching a crowd of three to 500 people who are coming up King's Highway towards our house are screaming, shouting, beating on drums, screaming pro profanity, getting whipped up into a frenzy. And then boom, boom gates through the open. gate. And I'm, I'm telling you that a person could sprint from that gate to my house in two seconds. You don't know where somebody, anybody could burst from the crowd and boom, you're on the ground. Patty, do you mind if I push you guys just a little bit on this? Do you mind if I push you a little bit on this? Sure, go ahead. That's what we're here for. So if someone were to say to you, I hear that, and, and I hear some of what you're saying. They may say, I don't agree with all of it, and I don't agree with your characterization of all of it. But I understand that if you're outside and there are lots of people out there and there's noise and there's concern and there's lots of stress all around, I understand how someone could come to that place. But that if you'd stayed in the house, if you'd not pulled guns out, that, that they would not have come in and that they likely would have just moved on and kept walking through the neighborhood you say what to that? Well, this is, this, this, is, this is what I say to that. I said this on, I was doing Breakfast Britain um, a couple of days after this event. The, the uh, uh, interviewer from Breakfast Britain asked me this question. I said this, you know, if I had gone in the house, she said, why didn't you just go in the house and film it on your cell phones? Well, because I thought there was a high probability that if I did that, my house would be burned down, I'd be killed, and we'd be attending my wake right now, back when I had this Breakfast Britain show. Um, instead of you interviewing me as a live human being. Am I supposed to interview each person as they breach that gate and say, are you the good protester or are you the violent mobster? Are you a person who just wants to make some noise again on TV? Or are you one of those people that shot police officers and burned 7-Elevens and killed David Doran? Am I supposed to individually assess each of these people as they walk through the gate? It's ridiculous. I mean, we were terrified, legitimately so. And look what did happen. No shot got fired. Nobody got hurt. Not even a sidewalk got painted. The only casualty that day, other than our psyches, was uh, that, that iron gate that had been there since, since uh, 1888. Um, and what happened when they leave here? They go to uh, Mayor Cruson's house. They shoot fireworks through a window trying to set it on fire. They accost news reporters with semi-automatic weapons. These are, these, this was not a crowd which you could trust to be harmless. And every indication was that they had no intention of being harmless. On our second event, we had law enforcement, FBI, who told us if they breach a window, if they breach a door, it's over. Yes. It's over. Yeah. You cannot defend on the, once they come in the house, especially if you have that kind of number. It's over. They took us to the house that night when they came, when we had the, the second big event. They showed us where to lay on the floor, where to get our guns, and where to start shooting. And all 20 of us were supposed to be there, lining up, just picking people off. We don't want to hurt anybody. Yeah, we had no intention of hurting anybody. But, this, but by the same token, there's a lot of stuff. We spent 33 years of our lives putting everything, um, our, our money, our love, our, our hearts and souls, into this house and everything in it. It is a... It is we've a, got a daughter upstairs. She's fallen on the floor. Yeah. Now she's hiding behind a sofa. She's sure they're coming in. Yeah. She's 31 years old. She's sure they're coming in. Now, the second, the other thing is the second time they came back. Now, I got a client we love. We, her whole family, we love. The reason why we knew the second event was going to happen is because Tuesday night she called me and said, 
I'm a part of this movement. Now we represented her. We went to her, her graduation. graduation from high school, from college, from I bought the her and her sister Tiffany necklaces when I went to her sister's high school for college. We went to their house for Christmas. Oh, her husband committed suicide by he was a cop. I was the only white person there, and all the the only white person there, and all the African Americans looked at her like, "What's this? What's this woman doing here?" And she goes, don't worry, she's okay. Don't, don't worry, she's, she's okay. And I love these people, and they, and they love us. But I got a call Tuesday night after this first event on Sunday saying, they say what you did is inexcusable, and they're coming back on Friday to kill you and burn the house down. And it's going to happen. And I, I said, but you know that's not us. You can tell them. I know she's I know, I know, I know. I told them, I told them, I told them. I, loved, I said, I love you. She can said, I love you too. But it's going to happen. Then she said, what if, I, what if me and my friends come out of appeasement and sit? Because mm-hmm. they're coming on Friday night. And we sit with a group of my African-American friends or whoever friends and sit on your front porch and we give out waters. And she thought for a minute. She said, no, it's not going to happen. They're still coming and they're going to kill you. Let me tell you how close we were to this family. Still are. Um, by, the, by the way, when that young lady called us up and warned us, that her organization was coming back to kill us. That's what saved our lives. Without that heads up, we wouldn't have had the security we had. But on the first night, that June 28th night, I'm- And they put out a poster saying- We ain't done yet. Let's go back. We ain't done yet. But on that, on that, on that Sunday night, June 28th, I was over at the office, boarding up the office. And at 2.30 in the morning, this young lady's mom, who's been a client of ours and friends for a long time, called up just to make sure that we were okay. And, this, and it told me what was being said in the press about us. So we were- racist and white supremacists and all this kind of stuff. And she said, I know you're not like that. I said, and she just called up to make sure we were okay. And that's how close we, we are. And, uh, and, and, and it was so shocking to have her daughter call up that Tuesday and say that she'd been, you know, taken over by this crowd and was now in with them and, and that, that we were going to have to die and there was nothing we could do about it. And, and we still talked to her family. Her family still tried to talk her out of it, but she said she just got in with the wrong crowd. And they can't talk to her. But I still love this girl because I know her heart. And she just got pulled into the wrong crowd. But I still love this girl. She's a part of my family, even if she doesn't know it anymore. Well, well Mark and Patty, I have a feeling that the fact that she called you, the fact that her mom called you, um, says that there's, there's a depth and there's a love there. Um, Let me explore that maybe a little bit more, even as we talk about this uh, a little bit here, too. Um, uh, And and again, I mean this respectfully to both of you. Um, Mark and Patty, is there, and again, I was not there, but, but, but often you have heard and you've seen the studies about how different people can interpret different sets of information. And you've heard a lot about the, um, uh, often the racist presentation of African-Americans where we're presented as scary, we're presented as threatening, we're presented as more dangerous uh, than we would be presented if in the exact same scenario we were white or we were something else. Do you think it's possible, Mark and Patty, as you think back about the way some of the things that were presented uh, in June and May before that June 28th night, that maybe you interpreted it in a more dire way, in a more threatening way, than you might have if they were if they were all white. I'll say this that I ran in 
when I called 911, first thing that the late, I told her, this whole group just broke in. They're screaming, they're yelling, they're threatening. And the 911 operator said, um, told her where I lived, and, and they broke through the gate. And she said, what are they? Are they, Af- are they white? Are they African Caucasian? Are they African American? Are they Hispanic? And I said, yes, all of them. They're, everybody's here, everybody. And then I go, well, no, that's not fair. There's probably no Hispanics out there. But when that, you look back, it is mostly not. Who had time to think yeah. about that? But mostly not. Mostly not African Americans. A lot of young Caucasians. Well, but I, I'll tell you this about the bigger picture. We lived here. When, when we moved back into St. Louis, we had a house uh, in the county with five acres. We had our horses there and a barn. And back in 1987, when we started trying to buy this house, uh, this Central West End was a war zone. Everybody thought we were crazy moving into the city and, and restoring a house that was in shambles at the time. We've lived here for 33 years. Um, we've never had a, a problem with the with the, the neighborhood. But one time, Patty and I were in New York City, and we had dinner uh, down in Greenwich Village, and we were going to walk back to the hotel when we were staying in Midtown. And uh, it's 2 o'clock in the morning, we're walking back. I looked at her and I said, no, Patty, I think we've lived in St. Louis too long. I don't think there's the old too, days. Too many, too many uh, middle-aged white people that would feel comfortable walking through this neighborhood at 2.30 in the morning. But it never never struck us as odd. I mean, uh, and I'll give you, you know, just as an example, I, I said this to you previously yesterday. Labels are easy, but actually knowing how people work is more difficult. It takes some time to, to get to know them. We have represented everybody uh, on all kinds of things. We have spent our careers representing people who have had a hard time making their miracles happen. People that have been abused by the system, people that have suffered grievous injury through neglect, and injury and death directly at the hands of the police. We represented a few years ago a young black man who had some psychiatric problems, who was murdered by the cops down in, in Charleston, Missouri. Um, and uh, uh, he'd actually uh, been locked into his apartment and, and pressured out by throwing Mason through a window. When he came out, he pushed past the chief of police, who was a the nephew of the former governor of Missouri. Um, and as he's backing up with his hands in the air, they shoot him right in the chest. Okay. We represented that man and got a nice settlement for his family. So we, last week, two weeks ago now, we settled a case for a young black man who, uh, at the end of a, uh, of a uh, carjacking incident, gets out of the car with his hands up, lays on his back with his hands and feet up. The cops get out of the car on their own dash cam. You can see him kicking them in the head and kicking them in the face. Um, we've represented gay white men for reverse discrimination by black employers. Mark, we have, hey, hey, Mark, will you forgive me, but just, just, just to interrupt just a little, just a little bit, just so, just so I get your thoughts on it, though. Sure. But, but even if someone acknowledged that, because you said labels are easy and getting to know people is harder. Is it possible someone could say, yes, they've lived in a mixed neighborhood, uh, they've had a mixed friendship set, um, and they've represent a mixed clientele, and yet and still they may have been impacted um, by, uh, by racial notions such that they may have come to the situation more scared than they should have been or would have been. Because you obviously saw last week on the Capitol, you saw a largely white group, you know, in many cases – get welcomed in um, to the Capitol with Molotov cocktails, with guns, et cetera. And some people would say that would have been a far more scary group, but would you have responded the same way if it had been that group instead of the other group? Well, the, the, the proof of that pudding is in what they did next. 
after we discouraged them from engaging in violence at our house, they went down to the mayor's house and engaged in violence and tried to burn our house down. Um, and so my, my instincts were not charged by race and not charged by um, uh, any kind of, uh, you know, white privilege type uh, background. What, is, what it was based on was their prior behavior, the same group in the same city in the same month. And now in retrospect by what they did at the mayor's house, not just this one night, but many nights afterwards, they came back to the mayor's house and tried to burn it down. Mark, if they pushed you on that, and if they said the reality is that we had been protesting for a long time, that you're associating more violence with us than, than is rightful, and that, in fact, we would have walked by your house and walked on to other homes, but that you instigated a more violent confrontation by brandishing guns, you would say what to that? Because you could, you could hear a reasonable person saying that. You could hear a reasonable person saying there were lots of protest in a variety of places, and that had you not brandished guns, it wouldn't have, have amped things up. How, how do you, is, is, is that reasonable? Yeah, it's a fair question. And, and in, in, uh, in a vacuum, I could see how they could say that. The problem is that they have protested a lot prior to our event. And every time they did, things got broken and people got hurt. There were, no, there were none of these protests where they were benign events. If half of them were benign events and I had to judge, gee, is this going to be one of those 50% times when nothing gets broken and nobody gets hurt? Um, uh, I still probably be out there because a 50-50 chance of getting killed is too much. Think about the country right now. Think about how much we've done to protect ourselves against COVID, a disease which most people will survive. Even all parts like me have a 99.45% chance of surviving it if I get it. But I'm looking at, a, at a, an organization which virtually every time they've had an a, a, a action, things get broken and people get hurt. And I'm supposed to say, okay, I'm going to bet my life and my livelihood on the fact that this happens to be the one time they're not going to break any, anything or hurt anybody. So in, they can say in a vacuum, maybe they would have just walked on by. But when they did finally walk on by, they did engage in violence and try to burn the mayor's house. They've done it before and they've done it since. Right now in this room we're sitting in, we've got Lexan on the windows to prevent firebombs from coming in. And so it's not unreasonable under the circumstances. You know, in my livelihood, we're both personal injury lawyers. And in our business, we uh, work on a principle of more likely true than not. The standard of proof that we need to win lawsuits for and, and represent the rights of our clients is we have to establish things more likely true than not. Was it more likely true than not that these folks were intending on violence and arson? Well, based on history, yes. Based on subsequent behavior, yes. Um, and so I think it would be disingenuous for them to say, had the McCloskeys not come out and defended their property with weapons, we would have just walked on by. It's nice of them to say it, but their history doesn't support it. They're also on tape as soon as they left here, because they left their, one of them left their tape recorder on saying, we're coming back here, we're burning this down, baby. And then they go on and they go about four houses down and they say, hey, can't we hit this one now? That's what we came here for, to get arrested. And then they have some kind of scuffle, people saying that you think you want to get arrested and hit this house or not. It's about four houses down. Then they spray painted on the ground, big deal. They spray painted outside of our wall, big deal. But these were not just 
people, we're you, we are, we live in the West End. We are so used to people just marching. Everyone in our country has a voice. It's something that says not just where you come from, but who you are. Welcome to NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of podcasts and a celebration of the hosts in journalism who've always spoken truth to power. Our voices are as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, and stories should never be about us without us. Find NPR Black Stories, Black Truths on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. In my best hopes... I guess identify the life that I want and and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Patty, when you think about President Trump, do you think that he has um, inflamed race relations over the last four years? How do you think he has, has turned it down? Like when, because clearly you're telling me that you care about these issues. Do you feel like he's been a help as it relates to that? A hurt somewhere in between? How do you how do you think about the job he's done? Well, I think he's helped a lot. I think he's reached out to people. He's had people. He's released people from prison. He has had all sorts of other voices into the White House to open up his ideas, his thinking about why the people that are in jail are in jail. Maybe this was overdone. Maybe we should start letting these people out. I think that that's really open-minded of him. He got he he embraced um, all sorts of um, thoughts and you know people not looking like him. And um, I thought he was making serious tracks. No, no, and, I meant on um, race relations, not on prison reform, but on race relations. Do you think on race relations, he, he, he's he been a good president? 
Yeah, yeah, I believe so because I I thought unemployment is is lower for African Americans, and I say race relations in prison because that when I see the, the mainstream news, they're putting those things together, saying that race relations and prison reform are the same thing because we're putting people in prison, African Americans in prison for things that you wouldn't, you know, like and you wouldn't for white collar crime. So. I, I put those things together, but I mean that I think there were there were opportunity zones. I think he set up like in St. Louis, there's a zone here where he's been an extra um, help for uh, for uh, police um, to help in the African American communities. I don't know any African American that wants fewer cops. He says, "I'll give you more cops um, because they need help there. They're they're afraid." I, we have. I would say 85% of our clients are African-American and have been for 15 years. And we become very close to them. We're not these kind of people that just say, you know, sign you up and we'll see you. And we don't even know who you are. We talk to them daily. Sorry, you said 85%. So 85% of your clients are African-American? Uh, yes. And, and, have, and what has happened since this? Have they stayed, have, have, have African-Americans continued to be your clients or have they... Have, have they said, you know, I don't like what I saw. I don't like what I heard. Uh, I like you as a person, but I don't respect the choices you've made. And have they, have they, have they chosen other lawyers? Everyone has said, I've done the same thing as you. I've talked to my friends. I've done the same thing as you. One was, was the, the girl that I told you about that called and said, I still love you. And I know that's not you. But I know that you're, they, they want you to pay for it, but not a one has left and not as one, not a one has said, um, and we've gotten calls from clients from way back, yeah. way back saying, yeah. I know you people and I would have done the same thing and I understand it. And um, so not a one. Mark, how do you think about the president? Because you know that, that even members of his own party have spent a lot of time talking to various uh, Republican senators, members of the House, even people supported the president have often said to me, candidly, Carlos, I don't like the way he's handled matters of race. I think he's made things worse. I think he's supported white supremacists with the um, Proud Boys, with, uh, 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 with the folks in Charlottesville, uh, the things he said when he was announcing his campaign, the birtherism. He said, nope. He said, I may have other things about the president that I like, but I don't like what he's done on race. Do you do you think the president has done a good job on race? I think the president has done a good job on race. I think the, the press from the day he came down the escalator has tried to make race an issue uh, to take voters away from him. Uh, every single speech that I've, that I've heard him say, uh, he has been as inclusive as humanly possible. He has, if you talk to the people that have worked with him and for him over the decades, everybody says that he is the, the least racist human being you'll ever meet. Uh, but the press has decided to demonize him on every front. And the fact that he has increased uh, African-American and Hispanic-American uh, voters in the Republican Party is proof of that pudding. Uh, you know, the, if we had six hours, I'd go into all the, the things that the media has said, particularly in light of last week's events, um, which, which are completely you know, uh, empirically impossible, for example. The break-in at the White House, I mean, at the Capitol building, started 20 minutes before he finished his speech. We had friends that were there. Um, they said cell phone service was turned off. So 
anybody listening to the president's speech, let's say the president heard 20 minutes before the end of his speech, people started to attack the Capitol building. But I, I guess the, the bottom line is that the president has been, um, has had one major adversary the whole time he was president, and that's the mainstream media. Uh, and it has distorted uh, his relationship. For example, the, the, you know, the thing in Charleston, um, the part of what he says gets reported just like 32 seconds of our event gets reported and it becomes the, the truth. There's no longer empirical truth out there. It's the accepted narrative that becomes the truth and the accepted narrative is generated by the media. And once that narrative is set, it's impossible to have any other version of facts believed because then it becomes propaganda or white wing uh, rhetoric or white supremacist uh, rhetoric and that kind of stuff. When, so when you think about media that you admire and you think about media that in your mind is doing a quality job, who's at the top of that list? Who are some of the, the, the media outlets that, that, that you think are actually uh, distinguishing themselves? Well, the only person that I know doesn't, doesn't uh, mince words and says what he really believes regardless, that's Tucker Carlson. Uh, he's he's uh, somebody that I think offends a lot of people. And he offends a lot of people because he says what he really feels and what he and, and what I think is, you know, empirically correct a lot of the time. Um, you know, there are. Uh, uh, but I got to tell you this, I get a lot of media. I get a lot of stuff on my Facebook page and Twitter. And uh, and 99 percent of it is outrageous nonsense. And it's impossible these days to glean the truth, to separate the chaff from the wheat. Because everybody has an agenda. Every news source has a political orientation, and no one is involved in giving you actual, unbiased, just reporting of facts without a spin. It, I think that's one of the major problems in our country today. I think the reason why the country is so divided is that instead of having a news media that reports facts, everything's an editorial. Patty, what about you? And it may be the same answer, but, but, but who stands out to you uh, in terms of quality media, quality journalism, uh, person or group that you trust, who do you turn to in order to kind of see the world more clearly? Always Tucker. Maria Bartiromo is a solid person. Um, I think uh, Sean Hannity is a decent fellow that can be solid. And um, uh, Laura Ingram. Um, and and we, we look at, at Newsmax, and Newsmax is pretty solid because some of the figures at Fox are starting to fail. And but, so, but I mean, on the other side, the two days, maybe the maybe the second day, maybe it was June 29th, June 30th, I can't remember which. One of the first shows that had me on there was Chris Cuomo, right? And um, before he knew anything about the facts, he was already calling me the uh, the face of white supremacy, and. Uh, telling me that the reason why the president had retweeted the, the clip of our event was because he was encouraging white supremacy. And I just told him, you know, Chris, that's absolute nonsense. That's absolutely nothing to do with it. And I was offended that he would take that position. Mark, just to pause you a moment, because I did watch that clip. I thought he said white resistance. I didn't think he said white supremacy. But do you remember it differently than I do? Well, if you've watched it more recently, I haven't, I haven't seen it in, in six months. I'm not sure that there is a, a functional difference between those terms. Um, but white resistance, I would, be, I would be just as offended by white resistance. Interesting. But, you know, I, that's so interesting that you say that, Mark. And I actually think that that's, 
that's really powerful and intriguing because I do think that there's a meaningful difference between white resistance and white supremacy. Um, and, and, and it speaks, you know, white supremacy feels violent and animated um, and, and ready to go in a way that while I'm not excited about white resistance, those do feel meaningfully different. So that's, but I, but I'm intrigued that, that, that you would see those as roughly, as roughly the same, but I think it's one of those issues about how we receive the same information that I was asking you about before. Is it possible that sometimes we can both look at something and someone can see risk and violence and certainty that they're at risk, and someone else can just see protesters exercising their First Amendment, trying to push us towards a better place on questions of race and social justice. And I, I wonder, I wonder if that's if, if that's deeper and 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 more real than maybe we always appreciate. Well, you know, on the, on the concept of white resistance versus white supremacy, neither one is a compliment. Okay. Both of them are charged with an accusation of racism. Both of them would be just as deeply offensive to me. They may be um, different different points on the curve, but they're both on the side of the curve that goes towards racism. And they're both an insult. They're both an accusation of a, of a, a frame of mind that I do not possess. And, that's, and so it's not that I'm saying those are equal terms, but they are equally offensive to me because they're equally a... a reference to, to racism that I did not appreciate. Uh, Mark, point taken, and I appreciate you saying that and, and, and point taken. Now, I was surprised in some of the uh, interviews that I, I thought I heard you say that you supported Black Lives Matter. Is that, is that true? I don't want to put words in your mouth. Is, is that true? My, my, my lawyer said it in those words one time, and I corrected him, and I've corrected it on, the, on the, uh, uh, every media event that's asked me that question. I support equal justice under the law. I support equal rights for all people. I'm a big believer in the, in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. I recognize the Black Lives Matter organization as a Marxist organization that's antithetical to everything I believe in. I believe that, that amongst other things, the, the biggest uh, uh, impediment to success in, in the African-American community is a segregation of, of family values and the, the lack of cohesive family uh, uh, organization. Um, Mark, sorry, you think that's a bigger impediment to black success than systemic racism? You know, I don't, I can't answer that question. I can tell you from personal experience of living in, in the murder capital of the world for most of my life, St. Louis is a remarkably dangerous place if you're an African-American, and that's because of black-on-black uh, -black violence. So we had 262 murders in the city of St. Louis last year, highest murder rate in 50 years, almost exclusively black-on-black -black violence. And no one wishes to address that issue. And certainly Black Lives Matter does not wish to address that issue. And in fact, when you have a conversation with a person about Black Lives Matter who is a supporter of the organization and you mention black on black crime, they get mad at you. I say, why? I mean, it's a serious problem. We've been living in the city of St. Louis for 33 years. Do 33 times 250. Thousands and thousands and thousands of young black men have been murdered in this city. And nobody, Kid. and kids, babies, children, adults, everybody, and nobody seems to care. And I, I, I do care. I mean, I've been, we constantly are trying to figure out a way to address the issue of violence in St. Louis. Not because that violence is necessarily directed at us. Virtually 
No Caucasians get murdered in the city of St. Louis. Uh, it is black on black crime. And it's a horrible problem, but no one wishes to discuss that. You would think that, that the Black Lives Matter would be interested in that, but they actually get angry at me when I raise that issue. Why do you think that's the case? If, if you were right, that when Black Lives Matter hears you bring up black-on-black violence, and if you assume, even if you disagree with them, that, that they really do want things to be better for African Americans, that, that all of us agree on that, that there's not a level playing field and that things aren't in the same place for people of different races on average. Why do you think uh, the folks who are spending a lot of their time and energy on Black Lives Matter get upset when you bring up black-on-black violence? If you assume they're thoughtful people, they're caring people, even if they disagree with you, but if you assume they're thoughtful people, why is it do you think they get upset when you bring it up? You can't raise money on black-on-black violence. You can't, you, you can't, you can't generate the kind of, um, of animus that is necessary to get donations. You, how much money has been donated to Black Lives Matter in the last year, and how much of it has actually gone to any community services or made any difference in the black community. Um, and so you can't, you can't coerce corporations, you can't coerce the uh, National Football League into giving you hundreds of millions of dollars by trying to fight black on black crime. But if you make it a white versus black issue, if you turn it into a racist thing, if you frighten people with a prospect of being labeled a racist if they don't give you money for support of your cause, then you're not gonna get that money. And so they have a political interest, a power interest, and a money interest in making it an issue of race rather than an issue of empowering and improving the lives of black people. Patty and Mark, let me, let me ask you a little bit about where we go from here, because uh, you know one of the things, we all know that this is a closely divided country, that there, there is a lot of animus and agita for any of a variety of reasons. And I've often said to people, what would happen if we all got together and tried to think about resetting America? Not about only the last 250 years, but also about the next 250. And what if we all were founders, instead of Washington, Jefferson, Hamilton, the founders were Duvernay, McCloskey, uh, Cuomo, uh, Lakshmi, you name it. What would be some of the things that you guys would bring to, uh, uh, to a conversation about America's next 250 years. What would be one or two of the ideas that you'd want to put on the table in order to make sure that our next our next chapter is a good one? Well, let, let me do. I was thinking about that today, as a matter of fact. I gave it a lot of thought. And I was thinking about, in my lifetime, the uh, um, the course of race relations. When I was when I was a kid, there was still de facto segregation, particularly in St. Louis. And then, as a result of uh, uh, the civil rights movement, Dr. King, there was this move towards integration. And then people were dissatisfied with integration, I think, and I don't know why, because I was young at the time. And then it went from, from integration to affirmative action, busing, and things of that nature. And then that didn't, didn't satisfy what the powers would be. I don't know, because I, although I went two of my undergraduate degrees are in sociology and psychology, the logic of all of this escaped me at the time. But now we seem to have the pendulum springing back the other direction, where Black Lives Matter and critical race theory is trying to increase not community, but division to have people identify themselves by subgroups and actively seek to treat people differently by subgroups. When we were kids, uh, and I don't know how old you are, but I don't think we're that much different in age, um, they talked about America as a melting pot, that we'd all pull together and work towards a common good and a common goal. Um, but now they don't say that. My 31-year-old my daughter says 
they talk about a solid ball. They're all supposed to maintain our individual uh, constituents that you're lettuce or you're radishes or you're celery or you're the, uh, you're the ranch dressing, but it should never all mix together. I think that all this talk um, about particularly critical race theory now uh, is work is driving a further wedge between people, people that never thought that, uh, that they should treat people differently because of race are now being actively told that they, if they don't treat people differently because of their race, they are racist. It, it seems totally upside down to me. I think that uh, if the founding fathers of our, of our country um, were a, a mixed bag, they would have created a country where uh, race, religion, national origin would play no part in your rights. I think the Bill of Rights was drafted exactly to create that situation. The fact that human beings are imperfect animals, the fact that, that God may have made us in his image, but he didn't make us exactly like him, that human beings are fraught with error, and they've taken that document, which should have created an absolutely bias-free environment in which all people could excel, and people have manipulated it to their own benefit because people like power, people like controlling lives, people like running each other's lives, um, and I always say there's no organization so small that somebody doesn't want to be the boss of it and tell other people what to do. And that's unfortunately just human nature. And that's the one thing I wish I could change. I wish I could have a way of creating an environment where people could all just work together and do so in an environment where everybody was considered equal under the law, equal opportunities, equal rights, equal respect, and we could move forward without having to compartmentalize people based on all these different things. Uh, Mark and Patty, if you don't mind, I'd love to close by doing what I call rapid fire, asking you a couple of quick questions and getting your immediate responses. Is that good? Sure. Um, I'd love to know from each of you, who's your favorite comedian? I don't, I don't have a comedian. They got her. (laughs) They don't exist. I can't think of anybody. Oh, you know, the the Italian guy. That's funny Italian guy. Everybody loves him. (laughs) Funny Italian guy. I'll go back. Funny Italian guy. You love him. You you love him. I don't know. I don't remember. Is that Ray Romano? No, no. no, no. After that, he's, he's he doesn't have to show or anything. He's just out there. He does stand up. He's pretty, pretty okay. Funny. Okay. So, I don't know. He's at the, it's just a garden, and he's at the garden, so he's doing pretty good, I think. Well, he was before the pandemic. Mark, who's your favorite? Yeah, I was gonna say I'll go back three generations. My favorite comedian was Red Skelton. Oh my goodness, you really did go back. All right, favorite book. Nineteen eighty-four. I was gonna say the exact same thing. Nineteen eighty-four. Uh, five years ago, may not have said that, but now. Uh, w- what's your karaoke song? If you've heard either one of us sing, you would not ask that question. <laughs> Never karaoke, but how about I'm still standing? I like that. That's a good one. If if you guys could have dinner with anyone, dead or alive, who would you love to have a meal with? Uh, for me, Kurt Vonnegut. Catherine Hepburn. Oh, that's a nice choice. That's a nice choice. Um, l- last thing here. What would surprise people to learn about each of you? I know you've shared a lot today, so even go beyond that. Give me a little fun fact, not a big one, but a little fun fact that would surprise people to learn about you. Patty, you first, and then Mark, you. Patty, what would surprise people to learn about you? Uh, That I grew up, put myself through school. Um, uh, Myself had multiple jobs, graduated first in my class, even with three college, uh, with going to school. Uh, undergraduate. Uh, when I went to law school for a while, 
I, I put myself through, but I also had to live in my car for a couple of months, um, which very few people do at SMU. Live in my car. Wow. Didn't have a house. I had a friend who was black. She had an apartment. I said, all I have left is this bed. You can have my bed because all I have is a car. I have a car to sleep in. And she had an apartment. So I said, you can take my bed, but I got the because I got the car. What, what kind of car was it, Patty? A Chevy Camaro, 1973. I remember that. Split bumper RS Camaro. Nice I car. remember that. Oh, yeah. We, we later traded it for an insurance policy. Yeah. Not, not bad. And, and Mark, what about you? What would surprise people to uh, learn about you? Um, I started working on the river when I was 15 years old. I was a deckhand on a riverboat when I was 15. When I was 16, I was the chief mechanic on a riverboat. Um, I worked as an auto mechanic. I worked as a welder, worked as a plumber. I've farmed. Um, I've done a wide variety of, of trade work. Um, and I didn't go directly to college after high, I mean, directly to college after high school. I went to work. And I uh, for, I think I'm four years behind my, uh, my same age peers uh, because I, I, I chose a slightly different path originally. And then eventually I got, I got lazy and decided to do something easy like go to college and become a lawyer. <laughs> Patty, Mark, um, I just want to thank you guys again. I so appreciate you guys taking out the time uh, to have this conversation. And uh, I wish you a, a very healthy and a very good 2021. Well, thank you very much. And, and you too. And thank you very much for having us on your show. You're a very kind and thoughtful interviewer. I do appreciate that. And you listen. And I, I uh, will start listening to you because you're very worth listening to. And now I have an answer to your question about who in the media I would defer to. And now we've got one. You, you know what? I'm, uh, I'm honored and I'm going to try and uh, make sure I live up to that. I've got an 86 year old dad who uh, keeps me on my toes. Uh, he had commentary. Uh, for me this morning at 4 a.m. So he's never he's never short of feedback, and uh, I'm going to tell him that uh, uh, that I have to uh, uh, continue growing and getting better. So uh, so thank you guys for uh, for taking the time. So thank you. Thank you again for having us. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Carlos Watson Show podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Everyone in our country has a voice. It's something that says not just where you come from, but who you are. Welcome to NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of podcasts and a celebration of the hosts in journalism who've always spoken truth to power. Our voices are as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, and stories should never be about us without us. Find NPR Black Stories, Black Truths on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. 
And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right.